0: You're listening to Q Marriage Mentors with Jeff Lutz, a podcast featuring conversations with remarkable lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender couples. What makes great relationships work? Jeff will ask the questions. You'll hear the answers. Together, we'll learn. Welcome back, everybody. Today, my guests are Iris Harrell and Ann Benson from Santa Rosa, California. Iris is a retired general contractor and the CEO of Harold Remodeling in Silicon Valley. Anne is a retired librarian and a systems analyst, and she also worked for Iris's company. They've been together almost 40 years. They're getting ready to celebrate their anniversary. Anne, Iris, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. Well, tell me a little
1: bit about how the two of you met. I was uh, like Humpty Dumpty, who had fallen off the wall. I was uh, with uh, a traveling band, and the woman I was, that was in the band with me was my lover. And we were not out, uh, and she left me for another woman. And I just about kind of, I lost my career and my girlfriend at the same time. Oh, and, gosh. And the uh, only lesbian couple I knew in the whole world I had met during my teaching career And I'd met them on the Navajo Reservation. They are Texans. They um, uh, had moved back to Texas and told me. I called them for advice. One was a counselor, a high school counselor. And I said, you know, I'm just falling apart. And they said, you need to come to Texas. You'll meet a Texas sweetheart, and you'll be happy the rest of your life. And here she is. It worked. It
2: worked. So we were both uh, invited to a coffee house that the National Organization of Women had put together. It was an all-lesbian coffee house. We think the first one in Dallas. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were both invited to sing, because Iris had been on the band, and I was playing in little places around town. So that's where we met. Ah, I didn't realize that. You all have a a music background.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and she sang uh, a Hank Williams tune and yodeled. And I was like, oh, that is the girl for me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's no no accounting for (laughs) taste. You you had me at yodeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. And so literally you were at a performance
1: that Anne was uh, giving. And how did you all meet after the performance? Uh, I went up and asked her if we could play together at the next month's meeting. And uh, she had a, a woman hanging on her arm that I completely focused out of, didn't even see her. And uh, she said, oh, yeah, well, just look me up in the phone book. I'd be happy to do that. And I thought that was kind of a diss, but I looked her up
0: in the phone book. Ah. And, Anne, were you interested in that moment? Did you know
2: that? You know, well, my lover was sitting right next to me, I'll just (laughs) say. She had actually moved to Austin, and I was still living in Dallas. And it was Iris who kind of pointed out to me later that she had probably, well, you know, left. Out of the back door. Yeah. So so, uh, I was very surprised when she called and said, you know, here's—actually, she sent me some songs. That we could sing the next one. She had written some, so uh, yeah, I was surprised. But it didn't take very long. It was a couple of weeks after that uh, first meeting that she brought a U-Haul, so I moved in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that joke started
0: with you all, <laughs> nineteen seventy-nine. <1979. laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so so you met at that performance. And did you perform again, uh, or did you go on a date? Which was first after that first
1: time? Well, we had to rehearse. Ah. So I went to her house, and um, and I was looking around to see if there's anybody there because I thought, you know, maybe there's somebody she's already attached to. Nobody was there. No, that was good. And she went. She we went through what she calls the interview. Where I had a list of questions to ask her during our conversation because my friends, who one was the counselor, was saying, Here's what, let's figure out what went wrong with your last relationship. And what do you want to do? What do you visualize for the good relationship? So, what are the things you need to know and who you're trying to connect with?
2: So, we're practicing, and Iris says, So, do you live, do you own this place? And I said, Yeah. She said, Oh. And a little later, she said, so how much education do you have? And I said, well, I have a master's degree. She said, that's great. And then, but it was then she said, uh, so are you religious? And I said, well, I was raised as a Christian scientist. She said, that's great. And I said, it is? <laughs> that was the strangest response. You weren't used to that kind of I response. Not. I was not. I was So the
1: questions evolved from what my last girlfriend, I had more education than she did. That was the separator. Um I didn't want to get uh, involved with somebody who was kind of here today, gone tomorrow. They had roots somewhere. And then the religious thing, it was actually, uh, there are a lot of lesbians mad at God, and the patriarchy surrounded uh, Christianity built on, the, on that. Uh, and so I believed in God, and I was religious, and I didn't want to be scorned for that. And so to have somebody who still read the Bible and was, you know still it was okay to be believing god i thought this is perfect
0: <laughs> that works for me and so it sounds like you were trying to wrap these interview questions into just kind of casual yeah, conversation yeah she's
1: really smart <laughs> <laughs> you caught on
2: it, it was it wasn't that hard Jeff. <laughs> think about it she, she wasn't quite as smooth as she thought she was yeah. especially since this was you know just a rehearsal so <laughs> a music rehearsal yeah
0: and and you made the uh, the joke about the u-haul but really it was not long well so that.
1: i asked her um you know when could we could rehearse again could we rehearse again on saturday or something she says well i have to work and i said up until you know like five or six i said well i could fix your dinner she said Okay, so she gave me the key to her house, and I came in early and fixed dinner. So when she came home, it was there. That was key.
2: Moment. Actually, we went out to a dance, but oh yeah, it was in those days. It was kind of just a bunch of people. It's, it's again that way now, but it wasn't really a date. You mean
1: at the uh, at the yeah. second meeting? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so that we were that was, but we performed there.
2: Right.
0: What was the moment that you each knew? Okay, this is more than a rehearsal. I want to see if we can make this. Well, I knew
2: it when she yodeled. <laughs> you did? Right then. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But it. She, well, I, to be truthful, uh, I had a pattern of uh, being with somebody, being with a woman for about two years. And uh, my longest was four years, I think. That's probably charitable. Um, and so. When I really knew uh, it was going to work or had a chance is uh, when I think it was the first argument that we ever had. She had tidied up some stuff and thrown away some old calendars old calendars that I really was fond of. And so we had this little snip <laughs> and it's when she said, well, uh, you might not want to talk about this today, but I'll be here. And nobody had said... I'm still going to be here. And pretty much whatever the objection was or whatever she'd just say, in a very casual and light and loving way, well, I'll be here. So nobody had ever said, I'll be here. And I thought, well, maybe I should be here too. (laughs) She had a way of responding that offered some security. and and, uh, Breathing room too, I think. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. commitment. It was all about commitment,
1: and it's not like I grew up in that situation. My, I mean, she had a family. Uh, you know, her mother and father were together forever until her, her father passed, and uh, I, my mom had been married three times. So I didn't, I didn't see a long term relationship modeled uh, in my immediate family, but I sure as heck wanted one. That was kind of one of my goals was to have a long term relationship. And uh, the other one was to have a career that was something I could stay in and not get bored with, which my father changed jobs often, early and often, either when he got mad or bored or both. And uh, I knew that that created a lot of instability. And it was something I yearned for. And that I got both was kind of amazing. But I think I got both because of Anne being the foundation. I mean, I think if you have a good long-term relationship, it sets up the rest of your life for being able to build on uh, other long-term major events. Sure, for personal growth. There's
0: so much I want to know about your 40 years together, but first of all, Ann, tell me a little bit about your coming out experience.
1: Well,
2: uh, I I had I, I had girlfriends, uh, you know, when I was a teenager. And I was very close to him, but I, you know, I was growing up in Dallas and didn't know very much about what I was feeling Um, until, actually, my dad said something about 69. And I said, I don't know what you mean. And he said, yeah, you do. And I said, I don't know what you mean. And I looked at my brother, who kind of blushed, and look at my mom, and she's like, and so my dad turned to my mom and said, well tell her, and she said, well you tell her, and neither of them, taught. I, taught, I asked my brother later and he kind of indicated it has something to do with, with being queer or being homosexuality, homosexual, and I didn't really know what that was either at that time, but it was a clue to keep it much more quiet, my feelings much more quiet than they were. So but when I went out to off to college uh, before um, before Christmas, I found a girlfriend and we came out together.
1: My coming out was in college as well. <clears throat> I was at a a, a, a a woman's college in Virginia. Uh, I think it was sophomore year when we actually sexually acted on the on the relationship and. It brought to me: uh, here I was, this religious person, uh, you know, raised Southern Baptist, and all of a sudden, everything that I had been told in my life came into question. Because it's like this can't be wrong. I mean, I wasn't—I'm not a bad person. So why is this not talked about and so frowned on? And what you know? So I became quite a rebel. Uh, in coming out, because it politicized me.
0: Interesting. So uh, if I heard you correctly, uh, when I've talked to others who have been raised in the church, they talk about often a really long stint of shame and uh, really hating themselves. You, you kind of knew intuitively that it was okay
1: well, I knew that I was, uh, that I, I somehow, I mean, how anybody can escape from this and raise Southern Baptist, I somehow felt like that I was, and God saw all that he made, and it was very good. And Genesis was like, I'm a good person. Why would somebody say I'm going to hell because of this act? And what was really neat in, in, in finding Anne was that Christian science has a very different bent on good in the sense that they don't teach you that you're a sinner, and but for the grace of God that you are a good person. It was like, you are a good, perfect person. You just need to clean your windshield so that you can see that you're perfect and demonstrate it. And therefore, with that, help others. It's not an ego thing. It's really about finding your purpose, uh, being able to do good in the world. Because if you don't think you are good, you can't do good in the world.
2: But even... Even coming out and even having that epiphany about, you know, whatever, what else have they lied about and wanting to be proactive, we each had uh, this thing of, well, we're actually the only ones in the world. We had no idea. Yeah. So we couldn't, you know, start wearing a ribbon and, you you know, and finding other lesbians. It's like what we didn't. And we guessed at that point we knew we were lesbians, but we didn't know that there were other lesbians. It was a different time. Yeah. It was yeah, 1979
1: when we met, so and when we came out, it was in the early 60s. Yeah.
0: So you yeah. both referenced the women's movement, but talk a little bit about that. The women's movement was big, but not so much uh, a way for, for lesbian lesbians. women
1: to Well, know. the NABO National Association for Women, were the one who sponsored that lesbian event. None of the other women's groups wanted to kind of touch that or endorse that.
2: But that was 15 years after we came out, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, uh, so... So we wa- we watched, uh, you know, Woodso- uh, Woodstock, we watched, uh, you know... Martin Luther Earth- King. Martin Luther King, and yeah. it wasn't until, I guess, uh, we started seeing... Um, the gay movement or the gay revolution or the gay whatever and that was I was in London when uh uh the Stonewall happened and so I guess Stonewall was the catalyst of oh yeah we don't we're we're not just alone we are a movement and And, we're not going to take it anymore (laughs) well that was a slow it was was a slow slow evolution of our thinking
1: yeah yeah I mean I think every minority knows how to protect themselves, uh, particularly if you're in a—I in a, mean, you know, we we're, weren't living in California then. You know, she was living in Texas. Uh, we met in Texas. I was living in Virginia. And so you know how—you know what you need to do to survive, and you know what not to say. But um, it, it under—it kind of—I think being a minority— helps you identify with all of the other minorities and realizing the importance of minority rights. So uh, my mother was a feminist, even though she didn't admit it, uh, a feminist in the sense that she hated the fact that they at the bank asked her for her husband's signature for a loan when, you know, she was the one asking for the loan for the business and she was the one that was providing the money. He, he wasn't and nor would he be reliable to do that. So I learned that feminist bent from her, but in coming out as a lesbian, it kind of broadened it for me. But Every every minority is being marginalized and lied about, and and who we are is being lied to, to the general public. To kind of create this black and white 1950s television show, that my father knows best, you know, that was never the right answer in my family. <laughs> I grew up in a matriarchy, so... Uh, she was a rebel. I just took it to the next level in the sense that my sexuality wasn't heterosexual. So I was in love with her girlfriends. I was in love with my best friend in high school. I was in love with my, uh, but, but when I went to college, was when I was first able to act on it. I was still, we were still dating guys. Sure. But, you know, we would meet in the girls' room in college and make out in the bathroom and then come back and be with our, the guys we were We were dating and going home. That's kind of how we had to do it back then. Yeah, it was weird. It was really weird. I mean, imagine a heterosexual trying to pretend that they're gay all of their life. I mean, how much work is that? It's a lot of work. Exhausting. Yeah, and it's living a lie.
0: So you meet, and you have this next rehearsal, and Iris, you cook and dinner. Tell me what happens next in your
1: relationship. Yeah. Well, she was so sweet. I mean, she, I, I was the one who didn't have a career again because I had, you know, uh, I was trying to reestablish my life. She had, she was the steady one. She had a job. She had owned the house. Her parents had loaned her the money for the down payment. And so she was kind of the stability and I was trying to still find myself. And so she decided that we would just pool our money so that there wouldn't be an inequity of, you know, and that. We would each have $5 of walking money a week, and with no accountability of how we spent it, and then we would pay the bills together, and I mean, and she put my name on the house in the first year. That was,
2: yeah, a little later.
1: And I was like, I mean, nobody had given me unconditional love since, probably since I was a baby, and uh, because in my family's house, it was, if you stick your feet under my table, you will do as I say. That's... Kind of not unconditional love. (laughs) But um, she just accepted me for who I was and who she was going to find out I was as we got to know each other. And we just started... She wanted to equalize things, which was, I thought, the most generous, kind-hearted, loving thing. That's what a person in love does. And and that's what a commitment is. I was was just blown away. You had been
2: longing for that. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I wanted to
2: honor that. But I didn't want to be the daddy I didn't want to be the one taking care of and I could see that Iris had all the you know talent in the world once she got a job we you know and that be a big deal
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, her investment paid off <laughs> because so we started life you know I was a Christian scientist and she was Kind of not. You were kind
1: of. I was a. I was
2: a. I was a, a very. I was. I was a agnostic
1: and... at that point. Yeah, I resigned yeah. from the Bahai faith. I was Bahai for ten years, but I resigned because they finally came out with their re- writings on gays. You know, still putting us with the you know um, all of the other bad things: drug addicts and murderers. Yeah, things. yeah, yeah. And it's like
2: okay. So I was a Christian scientist. She was not. I was. I had a. Was bringing money, and she was not. And like within ten years later, when we moved to California, uh, and after that, her business just well, her business. She started her business as a nonprofit. Meaning, I didn't know that you're supposed to construction company uh, because she'd only been a nonprofit. So at the end of the year in her company. If it came to zero, that's what you do because you're not. Well, you go you buy know. a you go buy, you go a a truck, buy a truck for cash because yeah. you don't
1: want to have to pay taxes on you know money that you made.
2: So, so uh, we moved to California. I yeah. had this little talk of, you know, if we're gonna do this, we had sticker shock, you know, in Silicon Valley, how to pay the mortgage and stuff. I said, you got to get a job. You got to you got to make money. Yeah. So uh, she's Come kind on. of unemployable. So she started her own company, in a good way. Unemployable. On,
1: she's talking about the entrepreneurs. You know, the entrepreneurs don't like to have bosses. Yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah. So anyway, okay. it turned out, so if you if you start life with each other, and I'm a Christian scientist, she's not now, I'm not, and she is. Uh, and <laughs> You can and, always expect things to... to, to I know. And for years and years, she shoveled money into our account because her company was so successful so you never know what you're going to get when you start out but um, if you're lucky you just roll with it you know in a good way you
1: know when I started making more money than she did she started getting nervous because she thought that might change the balance of power
2: well every time I I just
1: give my checks to her
2: I was working working at Stanford and uh, I'd get a I'd get a raise and I come home and say "I I got a raise and Next thing I know, she's given herself a raise. And at first I thought, well, that's just not right. And then I thought, well, she's giving me her check, so I guess it's okay.
0: <laughs> Did that make you anxious a little bit when she first started putting a lot of money in the account? No,
2: no, not at all. It was more like uh, just... She was worried I was going to
1: change, I think.
2: Maybe, maybe yeah. but even more than that, it was like, well... Let's uh, let's celebrate my raise for even more than you know ten minutes. <laughs> it was sort of that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <That's>, uh,
1: <laughs> and
0: in doing my research, I understand that the two of you went to a workshop that was
2: rather life changing in a way. Yeah, I had gone earlier to uh, our friend uh, Lanny had was part of this group uh, that, and I went to a. Thing on dismantling racism, Iris wasn't interested at the time, and I was busy, and as she a CEO. was busy. Yeah. So I went. It was a three day thing, and it was just it blew my mind, uh, and it helped me so much. Well, there was another one coming up called dismantling uh, classism, and I came home and I said, "That was so good." There's this other one. It's probably nothing that we could really learn from, but. You know, this was let's let's support Lanny. So we go.
1: We'd been together twenty years, then.
2: Yeah, twenty years at that point. Yeah, okay. yeah. and of course we'd have these knockdown, out arguments about this and that, as every couple does on the way. What we learned at this, uh, well, the first thing you do at this conference is you figure out what class you're in, and Iris has always figured out that I'm very, 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 I was raised very, very wealthy. And it turns out that's not true. My dad had to, had. we learned what the classes were. My dad had to work. Uh, that means I'm working class. We also, uh, uh, it was just obvious uh, that we were middle class, which meant that Iris was either raised poor or uh, working class. And she wasn't poor because uh, her I, dad her parents really did have some money coming in, that meant that she must be working class.
1: I knew that I was one class under her, and whatever she decided she was, then I had to be one class under that. So it was the working class. So, so were we, poor, working class, middle class, and and wealthy.
2: Yeah, and so what we learned was that we learned the strengths and weaknesses of the class, not not necessarily... It's, it was so much more powerful than if I knew what her her strengths and weaknesses were, because I kind of knew that. I just didn't know it in the context of class. So I learned that because I'm working class, class. I'm middle class, I know what the rules are. I uh, run with the rules. I plan ahead um, and probably other things. And I have my, my, my weaknesses are if I lost all that grounding tomorrow, it would pretty much freak me out. So, now I have this partner who's a working-class person. And uh, we don't care what the rules are because we didn't make them.
1: And so, one thing that working-class has in common with the wealthy is that we don't want to follow the rules. We didn't. We The rich can buy their way out of it, and the working are just, uh, I'm not going to follow it, period. I'm going to make my own rules. Um, which kind of helps make us unemployable sometimes. <laughs> but... Uh, it, and the other thing is I had to find my class, and there was this rowdy bunch over there in the corner talking about they weren't going to follow the rules of the conference. I said, ah, these are my people. <laughs> and so that's how I knew for sure I was, I was a working class.
2: Uh, and but but to, working class people
1: work. I mean, that's yeah. a huge strength. If we lose everything tomorrow, we'll just go out and work next week and try to get it back. You know, it's not, it's not, a, we're not, uh, Long-term planners, which is a, a, a weak side, but the short side I and mean, the good side of that is like, we'll just start over. Hey, that's that's not
2: a problem. Let's go do it. So you can see how if we don't kill each other, it's a huge uh, strength to have this cross-class relationship. Yeah. yeah. So, Tell me it, more about that. How did it... You know, Strengthen your relationship over the years? Well,
1: when we would have arguments, of, and a lot of it was about money and planning, I wanted to be more spontaneous. She wanted to plan ahead, and she wanted to put money in the bank, and I wanted to spend it. So, uh, because I was going to get more next week, you know. So, when I realized that the arguments we were having weren't personal, it wasn't about me personally, it was how she was raised. It was like, oh, well, what can I learn from that? And what can I negotiate on my part for wanting to be doing something spontaneous. So it got us into a more neutral type of negotiation as opposed to you always get your way or you always want to do this, you know. And it it, it made us, I think, appreciate each other because we learned the strengths of each class. And her strengths are what made our company successful because even though I'm a slow learner, I am trainable. And so I finally got... Uh, the advantages of of the middle class uh, strengths by living within long enough.
2: Well, your entrepreneurial uh, bit part kind of freaked me out from time to time. So mm-hmm. um, it helped to talk after that to say, you know, look, I really need a little more. Uh, uh, Walking money. <laughs> well, I have $10. <laughs> well, I got it up to 20 20 yeah. It just, you know, uh, it, was, it was a pretty wild ride because the company, when we had hard times, uh, and every company does, uh, our um, home equity line is what floated it. So that's a little nervous that's, making for a yeah. middle class person. So talking about it, I mean, talk... The, com- the conversations would always uh, come out with, we're going we're gonna, to, you know, this is going to work. So, What would you tell younger couples
0: about managing money together now that you've been through that experience?
2: Well, in- initially, I think it's important for both people to have their own money. At the same time, I think you could start, uh, having a joint fund so that you're putting some of money some of your money both to the degree that, so Iris was make. I was making a lot of money in the in the beginning iris was pretty much nothing so I'd put most of my most of this uh, joint money was mine but once it got to the the joint account it is ours and I think it's important not to Hold that over. And that's what I really wanted to do about that is uh, um, equalize the power, you know, so that what will we do with our money instead of what will you make me do with my money, kind mm-hmm. of thing. So we are in it together. If we are in it together, money is just part of it.
1: Well, the other thing is, I think we agreed on uh, no back door, that we're going to, we're not going to go out the back door and just leave. Uh, because we can't, we have a conflict. We're going to sit this out, and we're going to be. Here. Sometimes you can't work it out. Sometimes you just have to be there long enough for the wave to go over. you, yeah, know? you have to
2: sit in your misery sometimes a little bit, yeah. and it passes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Iris and we're almost out of time. But is there
0: anything else that you would share with our listeners about making relationships resilient?
1: Well, I I just want to say that I think the best way to personally grow is to find a suitable long-term partner and grow together. I mean, there's there's no way that I would have been as successful in any of my other endeavors without learning to live with Anne in uh, a way that provided sustenance, love, and uh, you know, unconditional love for for each of us. There's just the life lessons are just so great. You feel that
0: you've grown stronger as an individual because of your relationship with Anne.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, if you can find somebody who honestly says, I'm in it for the long haul, I think that's a huge, uh, good start. It's just a start, but... Um, an important start. An yeah. important one, I think.
0: And... Paris, thank you so much for spending some time with me today.
1: You're welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for coming to see us. Do you know any LGBT
0: couples with interesting stories and wisdom to share on the show? Jeff would love to meet them, so please contact him through the website at qmarriagementors.com. Until next time, thanks for listening, and have a great week.